The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Well, well, we're going to get you out of here as soon as we possibly can. So, we're, so are, are you actually in your motorhome this afternoon, this evening? I'm in my motorhome. There is the faint sound of uh, cars racing around. Tonight of all nights, they decide to race at night. The first night they've done that, but right now it's happening. They're actually racing and, uh, right now. Uh, yes, but it's some. Uh, fortunately, it's some uh, lower powered cars that don't make nearly the racket. You may not be able to hear it too much. I see. Okay. Because I was. It's funny. But I went. It's, I went, it's, I went, it's a faint sound, so you can just imagine that it's a series of P fifty ones blasting by. If you want. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. There we go. Well, okay. Uh, and uh, Jeb, you're still plugging along there with your cell phone, right? Oh yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. And uh, Dave, you all set? Ready, rock. All right. Then I'll say uh, welcome, folks, to episode number 64 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday evening, January 16, 2008. And uh, we have an interesting situation here because of some technical snafu. Well, in one case, we're stretching the bounds of technology. In another one, we had a little bit of a problem. Jeb's on cell phone tonight so uh, because his cable's out, although his cable may magically come back in the middle of the podcast, in which case he'll come online with Skype. And then we have one of our uh, friends in the hangar by telephone. Let me say hello to our the folks who are here in the hangar. As I said, Jeb is here. Jeb is an aviation journalist, currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. He's also a contributing editor to Avweb Biz, and he's talking to us by cell phone from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Hi, Jack. I'm fine. Um, and good evening to uh, both the rest of the people in the hangar and uh, to our listeners. I uh, hope everyone's doing well and uh, mostly recovered from the holidays. So, like I was, I was teasing earlier, you got all your ba- all your eggs in one basket here. You get your you get your yeah. your television, your internet, and your regular telephone all on your cable. Right. Well, and and that's that's exactly correct. Um, I had a <clears throat> should I say a disagreement with uh, Verizon a few uh, months ago. Uh, they can't seem to uh, figure out that a trouble ticket that specifically says inside the house wiring doesn't mean that they can cancel the ticket after they do a line check and determine that their line to the house is good. I see. Um, so I, after three or four go-arounds with them and a lot of wasted time, energy, and even gasoline, I kind of uh, uh, gave them a Bronx cheer and uh, suggested that they take their uh, um, POTS, which stands for Plain Old Telephone Service, uh, uh, elsewhere. So you think uh, you think a little uh, bit of uh, negative enforcement will do the trick, huh? Uh, I'm sure memos went all the way to the top, you know. You couldn't penetrate that with a diamond drill and, uh, uh, you know, 3747 on top of it. There's uh-huh. no way to penetrate that. Also, again, uh, with us here in the hangar this evening is Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine, and he's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. Good evening, everybody. All the airplanes in the air, all the ships at sea, and 
uh, you know, all of you uh, enduring this one big storm that's sweeping from Sarasota all the way up into Nebraska in our neighborhood. Uh, why, would it, any, why would ships at sea be listening to us? Well, a lot of spare time out there, man. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't go very fast at 8 or 10 knots. <laughs> all right. And also with us in the hangar this week is Dan Johnson. Dan's been with us a couple times in the past, and he's back again. Dan is a hang gliding and ultralight pioneer, and these days he is an aviation journalist who focuses on the light sport aircraft field, and he's also the chairman of the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association, and he is also one of the people we have to blame for Dave Higdon being a pilot. Uh, He's talking to us from his motorhome in Sebring, Florida. How you doing, Dan? Uh, sorry about the Dave thing, but otherwise, hello to all of you. <laughs> <I'm glad> you... <laughs> you are once again with us on the occasion of the uh, U.S. Sport Aviation Expo down there in Florida. Is that correct? It's right on the eve of it. Uh, the big events have already begun, actually, and the airplanes have started flowing in, and this thing is taking on a whole new head of steam for its fourth annual running. Mm-hmm. Now we want to want to thank you for joining us this evening. Taking a few minutes, I understand you're passing up some sort of uh, of uh, social engagement, some sort of party that's going on there. Uh, free drinks. Well, I, you know, I know it's not the free drinks; it's the chocolate fountain. He was telling us that it's the uh, chocolate fountain. Oh. How can you pass those things up? Strawberries <laughs> and a chocolate fountain. I mean, good heavens! But no, I'm hanging out in the hangers, so here I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, uh huh. You brought at least snagged a beer from it before you came over. <laughs> Well, fortunately, motorhomes do come well equipped, so I'm not exactly destitute. Uh, and and your, yours is is nicely equipped. I've been inside it. It uh, it doesn't lack for place to hold cold beverages. Well, no, we talked about this before, Dan. You you practically live in that motorhome, right? I mean, that's well, we winter in it. This is uh, now our second full winter in it, and we're having a lot of fun with that. Although we may uh, move forward with some more fixed dwelling in Florida. Uh, it's just a great place to escape to, not only to get out of Minnesota winters, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh-huh. It could be. Uh, some are, actually. But uh, certainly Florida is just full of all kinds of aviation activity. It goes on pretty well all through the winter, so it's a way for someone like me to keep putting groceries on the table. Yeah, there you go. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts. And, Jack, you're getting good at that. Uh, getting better and better, huh? Better and better. So Dan, you're down there for the ultra, the, not the ultralight, the uh, light sport uh, expo, and uh, tell us what's going on down there. What's uh, what's the state of the light sport world these days? Uh, alive and kicking like no tomorrow. Uh, it seems like every time you count the number of models that have achieved their special light sport aircraft status, that means fully built, ready to fly, factory manufactured, you know, looking good and ready to go status. Um, there's another one and another one and another one, and nothing like Sebring, apparently, will drive that better. Um, I did a little list while we've been chatting here, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine new unveilings or announcements at this show in this category. Airplanes not seen before looking, or at least in this form, and in most cases they're almost brand new airplanes. I mean, redesigned airplanes or whatnot. And uh, and that's not the end of it. Uh, Cessna is now a sponsor of this. Cirrus has become a sponsor of it. Garmin has become a, got, become a sponsor. In addition to the local support they've always gotten from uh, the Ford people in the Southland area, they call it here. That's an area of Florida. 
and uh, they get good support out of the Tampa uh, media that they have some good connections with. So quite a remarkable development against a backdrop of air shows being threatened, you might say. There's been stories about EAA and their relationship and how insurance matters have caused them to have to back up a little bit. And, uh, you know, it makes kind of a glum picture, but, boy, not if you look at Sebring. It's a happening place tonight. That's great. That's great. Have so, cool. you seen the new SRS yet? I mean, yep, down the new, there. The SRS is here. Uh, it's not, uh, I mean, it is flying, but uh, I believe they trailered this one in, actually, um, because I think they're in the process of making some changes. It had some really snappy new seats in it since we all saw it at the AirVenture. Look like uh, race car seats in it with side bolsters and stuff. Real, real handsome. I'm not sure if I'm familiar sure. familiar with that airplane. What is it? It's oh, the, the Cirrus. Okay. Oh, the Cirrus. Yeah, tell- LSA. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, they, what- that, they actually cleared us since we're not going to be on before their embargo ends tomorrow morning. But uh, Cirrus is going to start taking deposits on this airplane uh, Thursday at Sebring. And apparently you'll be able to, if you can't sign up in person, uh, they, they're going to have a mechanism on their website starting tomorrow late morning that's supposed to let you uh, get a delivery position and uh, put down your deposit on the Internet. Uh, that's for an airplane that uh, I believe they said would be delivered in early 2009 or start deliveries in 2009. What's the price going to be? 110 to 120 uh, was the information they gave me, and I think that range is probably because uh, they may not have locked it in firm yet, and you're probably allowing for some options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Dan, what else is going on down there? Tell us more about some of the highlights of the uh, of the of what you expect of the event this year. Yeah, let me just kind of do this quick. I don't want to do a disservice to any of these companies, but there are just so many. We could use up your whole period here, and I don't. we don't want to do that. But, so let me kind of take them in, in some sort of an order here. This is based mainly on their announcement timing, not really my preferences or, you know, this is no suggestion or endorsement. Uh-huh, okay. Running, running down the list here. Uh, first one that announced was the uh, Flight Design CTLS. Uh, this is a nose-to-tail redesign of the best-selling of the LSA breed, the uh, CT2K and CTSW preceded it. This is now the third generation of that airplane, and they're doing a Cirrus-style unveiling in front of their booth right after Cirrus does their announcement of uh, taking orders for their SRS model. Um, and they'll, So they'll use, because flight design, like Cirrus, uses parachutes as standard equipment, they've also covered theirs with a uh, parachute, one that fits their airplane. And uh, they'll do the unveiling just like we saw Cirrus do uh, at their booth space at AirVenture 07. So that's kind of cool. That's the first announcement following uh, Cirrus's big announcement about their taking orders officially. Uh, other airplanes that are being offered here are the uh, Sting 3 model is just coming out now. That's an, uh, a significant redesign of uh, what was once called the Carbon Sting and later the Sting Sport. And this is now sort of the third generation of that, you might say. And... Uh, so they're gonna they were they will reveal that new airplane with a new uh, tapered wing, some very nice work on the wing it looks like, and uh, apparently that enhances its performance and handling, which is nice. Technum, a number a number a number number one of our leaders there is. It's easy for you to say. Ranking. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Technum Aircraft who will offer their new Eaglet model, a uh, further refinement of their high-wing, all-metal, strutted, uh, very delightful flying airplane. It has just some of the most wonderful flying characteristics you can find in any airplane. Uh, stalls or, per, or, or handling performance in any magnitude really does a nice job. company been around 50 years, so it's LSA new seeming to everyone else, but uh, this is a company that once was associated with any part Navy and known to a lot of GA pilots, so they know what they're doing. Uh, we have the new J-230 Jabiru, another variation on their theme, the enormous cabin LSA that's uh, based on a four-seater design so that where there would be two back seats, there's this large area that you can fill pretty well with baggage and still fly this thing at nice speeds up to 120 knots. Uh, Jabiru-powered airplane and a Jabiru airframe. I think that's the only company in the world that I'm aware of anyway. You guys could maybe know more that makes both airframes and engines. I think you're right there. They're they're unique in that in that uh, in that category because uh, they've had this little engine niche. If I remember right, they've actually had the engine niche a little bit longer than they've been building uh, uh, airplane kits. Yeah, that's um, right. We started seeing Jabiru engines, what, 15 years ago or better? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there is, if you look at parent companies, there is Textron, there is Bombardier. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, how does it work? Now, I was under the impression that the light sport spec was based on uh, weight of the aircraft. Am I mistaken about that? And if I'm not, how do, how do you fit for a four-seater in within the uh, requirements? Uh, you don't. It's a four-seater cabin, not a four-seater in the seats. There's no seats back there. But there is actually a third door on it, so uh-huh. that you, in the four-seater, that's how you get in it. But they just take the seats out. Nothing uh-huh. wrong with that. It's okay. There's no. If you put seats in it, you'd be violating its airworthiness. So, you know, maybe somebody will do it, but, you know, that's no different <laughs> than it would be in GA or something else. You know, somebody will do it. Uh-huh. Otherwise, well, let me hit a couple of more here. I don't want to. I don't want to leave any of these leaders out here. Yeah, no, go for it, Dan. Yeah. Um, uh, after the uh, J two thirty Jabiru, as I said, that's by the way, that's their fourth model. There are now three companies that have four models certified under this new program. All of Jamie. this is in thirty three months. Eighty one airplane models certified. Fifty five different companies. Um. That 07 just about doubled the number of these that had been in the country for the previous 20-month window. Um, and, uh, you know, smoking along pretty good, really. Still a small thing in the overall spectrum of light aircraft in the United States, but uh, coming on pretty strong, I think. So anyway, some more models. A wonderful motor glider, our first real motor glider entry called the Lombada from Urban Air in the Czech Republic, the source of Czech Republic alone, the source of about... Uh, more than half of all light sport aircraft emanate out of that one country. Uh, very interesting. Anyway, and the lovely multiple compound wing it changes, taper it changes, uh, um, uh, anhedral, um, it has some anhedral and it has some dihedral, multiple compounds of each of those, really quite the thing. Sailplane technology applied uh, to a light sport aircraft and uh, 30 to 1 glide angle results in a really nice flying airplane. Easy landing tail dragger. Really a lot to say for that. Another one right on the heels of that. Another great flying airplane now available with fixed gear and a fixed prop. Had been a retract with constant speed and smoked along at 175. They were able to slow that down to 120 knots. 
for the light sport category and just got certified the dynamic WT9, which uh, uh, much fabrication done in Slovakia, the eastern Eastern European countries, if you will, and then import exported out of uh, the Czech Republic, uh, where they do some Finnish work, partly because of a bilateral arrangement with the government. Um, anyway, that's a very nice looking machine, uh, a real nice execution of uh, winglets uh, in a sweet design that just cooks right along and uses about uh, three gallons, three and a half gallons an hour, ash 120 knots. Um, the homebrewed one, uh, Rands out of Hayes, Kansas, uh, late December, won their second special light sport aircraft certificate on their S-19, a low-wing, all-metal, uh, roomy, and very nice flying execution from uh, that manufacturer, his 19th model. He's getting pretty good at it by now, I guess. And finally, uh, top of the list, and, and by the way, I'm still not doing all of them. Uh, I'm sorry, there's two more I want to I wanna hit on. A new one from uh, out of Canada, but they're moving to Tennessee. Uh, an interesting sort of hybrid operation that we're seeing more and more of where an Italian company ships basically airframe component parts, not an entire kit, but the bulk of what would be an aircraft kit, to this company, a Canadian company that will build them in Tennessee under a, a, a county there that has been so receptive to them, doing lots of things for aviation here, in, through the form of this LSA company, uh, building a new airplane called the Rampage. It's just a real looker, a high-wing, uh, sleek, all-metal, unilot of polished aluminum look to it, interior and exterior, nice execution. That's brand new here. Hadn't no one seen it before. And it has its SLSA certificate. So just a pile of these. And finally, one of the most interesting ones, and Dave, I'll bet you this will get your attention, is the ZJ Viera. Uh, hopefully, Americans would probably just call it the ZJ because the rest of that European name sometimes baffles us Americans. Uh, but this is a new Part 103 entry, the first in some time, and a ground-up design that in tri-gear form, it's also offered as a monowheel, but the tri-gear empty weight is 169 pounds. Wow. Uh, that makes it so far under the, uh, the uh, Ultralight 103 rule uh, that they could do lots of things with this design, I think, and it may spur other people to do likewise. Uh, fascinating little single place, 103, no license needed, no medical needed, no registration needed, no government needed. Uh, put along at 40 or 50 or 60 miles an hour and just have a great time for about 20 grand ready to fly. That's great. Not too, not too bad. So that's kind of a roundup and... Sorry, whoever I left out, but uh, there's just too many of you. I can't drink out oh, of this fire hose that fast. It's, it's like well, Dan, how, how many airframes, uh, you're just trying to get some metrics on the show there. How many uh, exhibitors are you are you going to have, and uh, how many airplanes on display that, that you know of? I believe the exhibitor count is in the range of 150, which is not wow. bad for a four-year-old organization. This is their fourth, so three prior. And uh, over 100 airplanes on display and doing demos all day long, every day, weather permitting, of course, but there's no other activities going on here. There's no warbirds, there's no aerobatic displays, there's no military, it's just right, it's LSA. not an air show. No, it's not an air show. This is a trade show for LSA, but a great opportunity because it's a little more intimate. I would say they might draw 10,000 this year. This is starting to get a little serious here. And it's right adjacent to the famous Sebring Raceway, uh, which actually owns this airport, as it turns out. 
And uh, so there's just a, it's a really kind of a neat place to be if you're any kind of a aviation or motorhead enthusiast. Is the airport open for uh, uh, transient traffic during the event? Yep, absolutely. Good observation. Lots of ramp space, huge runways, 300-foot-wide runways, that kind of thing, old military base. Uh, lots of room, lots of tie-downs. Bring them on. You should jump in the, jump in the debonair, Jeb. I'm, I'm thinking about that, actually. I mean, yeah, hell, you don't have any fine. TV, so you may as well. <laughs> That's right. No TV, no internet. Right. Uh, no, no internet, no TV, no. And no phone, no lights, no motor car, so I may as well get in the airplane. <laughs> you got- Dan, here's a question for you. Um, Jeb and Dave and I have talked about this in the past occasionally, that no one is more surprised than we are that we have listeners to this podcast outside of the United States, uh, uh, perhaps notably in lots of areas of Europe, um, where flying general aviation is, is very, very expensive. We moan about it being expensive here, but it's incredibly expensive over there. Is there an LSA community over there? What's LSA like outside of the United States? Well, it's a, first of all, it's a great question. Thanks for bringing it up, because this introduces a kind of a whole new topic that itself could take a while, but let me see if I can do it short. You know, I tell people I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer kind of guy. I'm a man of a few thousand words, or I get paid by the word here. Don't <laughs> ask me to be brief. Let's go, go for it. Anyway, let me try to do this. Uh, the certification standard that we use is an industry consensus one, that is, industry players got together, wrote their own certification, and FAA eventually bought off on it, issuing a notice of availability, and it's a formal, recognized process, but it's all 100% created by industry. Um, the certification system itself is unique, with uh, no, produ- no type certificate and no production certificate, and really, it's working pretty good. We've heard some reports from FAA about fatalities. Of course, we have a few. Every segment does, but they're not out of control. And this thing is, this whole sort of self-certification system is working pretty good. What happens, though, is we've created those rules. We, all the industry players who volunteered their own time to go to long meetings and distant places and do this work, uh, created a system using ASTM international guidance. Now, that used to stand for American Standards of Testing Materials. It's not that anymore. It's an international thing. Fuel around the world, auto fuel, that is, around the world is all done to an ASTM standard. So there's already huge precedents for these things being accepted everywhere. Our LSA are certified to ASTM standards. There are more than 30 countries already looking at adopting these standards. Australia's already done so. Done so. Colombia's already done so. A number of other countries are ready to do this because, first of all, it's an already working thing. They don't have to create it. That's easier for some countries, but also because it's recognized as a a smart idea that can be locally modified as they wish with a new set of standards, but they buy into a whole base of accepted standards in an American experiment that's being heard around the world. It's kind of cool. We just heard today in an ASTM meeting, these things happen twice a year, This is a, these standards are always in flex, they're always changing, refining, and you don't hear that in government certification systems too often. And uh, so we heard today from one of the representatives out of the Czech Republic who's well-connected to EASA rulemaking, the new um, regulatory body for the 27 EU countries, and, yes, they are moving toward adoption of some kind of regulation like what we have here. It, 
Cool. It, it takes its own process on because they want to put their own hand in it, as you might expect. But basically, they are moving toward it. So let's imagine two years from now, you could have 50, 60, 70 countries where an airplane you build to a certain standard can be sold in those countries without further effort of certification in those countries. That's a pretty amazing thing. Cool. Is there anything that individual pilots, aviation fans around the world can do to help the, pro, the, the you know, help the situation along? Sure. Buy an LSA today. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you know, is there anything they can do to kind of uh, move the legislation, regulation, specification along, or uh, is is it sort of no, on, on automatic pilot? Yeah, it is kind of serious about the buying part. Of course, that begins to show that there's a reality of market, but it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I admit. Uh, yes, there are things they could do, and one of them is is get more educated because we are fighting somewhat of an uphill battle. I've painted a pretty rosy picture, and I believe that to be accurate, but there are some battles to be fought, and one of them is within our aviation community of vast ignorance over this new rule. You know, this new thing has come along. It's affected 61, 91, 66. Um, you know, several of the regulations have been uh, 25, and even has had some modification due to this input of this rule. So it's changed some of the uh, basic way things have always been, unlike, for example, Part 103, which kind of came along and was its own entity and really didn't touch anything else, and if you didn't like it, you could just ignore it. This you sort of can't now because an FBO might, for example, have someone show up and say, I want a sport pilot license. And FBOs are commonly still saying, no, you don't want that. You want to get a private license. That's just kind of a toy thing. Um, it doesn't really help anybody when that happens. It doesn't help them because the customer came to find that, and now he's being put off by someone who says, no, that's not what you want. Right, but it the, also the doesn't help the go FBO because... They could make money training a sport pilot, too. It is the new starting point, whether some accept it or not. So acceptance within the aviation community would be a real good start to something people could actively do on their own. Well, I, I, I've come across this with some of my, uh, some of my neighborhood uh, pilot friends here in Wichita. Uh, a lot of really excellent people, old hands, been around for years. But when I hear one of them over breakfast say something about the light sport, wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, wouldn't fly it. They're not built to any standards. Uh, the FAA doesn't have any hand in, you know, in regulating them and blah, blah, blah. Uh, trying to educate the guy was really kind of an uphill push yeah. because he's not really – so much of the population of private pilots is not involved in – an organization that speaks directly to, to recreational flying. You know, that might be the kind of flying they do, but they're not necessarily all EAA members. In fact, you know, in fact we know they're not. Uh, they may not read uh, ultralight flying and light sport. Uh, they may not read EAA's magazines at all. And so this news, if they didn't pick it up in Pilot Magazine or someplace else, uh, you know, it just kind of went blasting past them, and it's kind of like, well, I'd... You know, that doesn't apply to me. I've got a license. And then the rumor mill starts working. You know, they're not certified airplanes. That's what the guy told me. And I said, well, they're not Part 23 certified, but they're built to an industry standard. It's, it's FAA approved. So they have an equivalent 
Oh, but it can't be the same thing. And, you know, it's like we we couldn't eat enough in one sitting to get this guy back on the right track about this category. So it's been a progressive thing. Yeah. 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 Well, it was his response to the argument that, well, you know, experimental aircraft aren't certified. Uh, well, you said most of those he wouldn't fly any either. Oh, well, okay. I'm assuming, Dan, that uh, people could go to your organization's website to get some basic information that they could use to educate themselves and uh, then pass along to others. Uh, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your website? Well, there are two websites to bring up here. Uh, Lama's website, Lama is the gamma of the light sport world, and it stands for light sport aircraft. Excuse me, it does not. It stands for Light Aircraft Manufacturing Association. <laughs> you go down these paths sometimes and you bump into the door. So. I can tell you're starting to jones for the chocolate fountain. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just hearing that thing dribbling down to the last few drops that I'm not there. So. <laughs> well, that, they're bound to be some strawberries growing nearby, so you don't have to worry yeah, about Yeah, the strawberries are history. <laughs> <laughs> What's the uh, website for Llama? <laughs> So the website for Lama, it's real simple, but it's a little tricky at the end. It's L-A-M-A, Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association, dot B-Z. Not B-I-Z, just B-Z. Just Bravo Zulu. Bravo Zulu. Bravo Zulu. B, B, Lama dot biz is something else altogether. You don't need to go there. But Lama yeah, dot B-Z. Uh, yeah. And the other one that people should go to? And on uh, Lama.bz, there is uh, right on the homepage, or, or excuse me, on the member list, which is available right on the homepage, there will be a, uh, a link to every member of Lama. And Lama, unlike Gamma, encompasses a lot of different companies in this field. So there's uh, like 100 names on there compared to Gamma's, I think, about 50 or 60 or something. Um, of course, they're a much larger organization. They do great stuff, too. I'm not trying to put them down, but uh, Lama is more of a populist thing in that we want more people to be members of it and the fees are a lot less and like that. Anyway, it's a good website. There's some stuff there on that that will link you to lots and lots of people's websites so you can really drill down as far as you care to go. And I'll do a gratuitous plug for my own site too, mainly because I will say here that there's lots of links more to other places. So uh, they're just all over the place. There's links everywhere on the site. So not all what I say. It's, there's everybody's availability there. And that's bydanjohnson.com, which is B-Y, Bravo Yankee, danjohnson.com. Great. That's great. Two more LSA things before we move on to uh, other parts of aviation. Um, you uh, Tell us about the flight instruction rental and maintenance list. Yeah, it's a new thing that uh, we're trying. We discovered, you know, one of those holes in a market where, gee, no one was filling it. We keep getting requests, and we're spending our time answering those requests when, why don't we just get the information and make it available somewhere? And one of those kind of eureka ideas, I guess, but FIRMLA stands for Flight Instruction, Rental, and Maintenance, and it's all LSA, kind of like this show I'm at here in the Sebring U.S. Sport, US Sport Aviation Expo in Sebring, Florida. And uh, uh, it, it, at that direction, then, you can kind of get any anything you want out of that website. And, and on the firm list in particular, you'll find all those listings for places where you can obtain services for those airplanes. The website has mainly been focused on airplanes, and, and that's it, just flight reviews of them, and here's their contact information, and here's some pictures of them and like that. But we got so many requests from people saying, well, great, all right, I'm interested in these things, but, you know, I'd like to go rent one, or I'd want to learn how to fly in one, or I have one already, and I need to get it maintained. And we were repeatedly telling them, well, okay, let me look one up here for you. And we went, 
gee, why don't we just do something different? So tomorrow morning on, uh, let's see, that'll make this historical now, won't it? Yesterday morning on the 17th or whatever, <laughs> January 17th, we went Thursday live morning. at Sebring Expo's opening day with the firm list. And we'll start off with about 100 uh, names there. And what we've done is to contact every single listing on there. This is not just some, you know, you fill in your information and we'll put it on a website for you. We physically called every single entity and said, look, if you say you're training in light sport aircraft, we want to put you on this list. There's a free listing and some paid listings and like that, kind of like Google. But um, we'll, we'll put you on this list if you have an N-numbered SLSA in service. If you've got one on order and you don't have it yet, let us know when you get it. We'll be glad to put you on. But we want to know if we send somebody there that there's really someone there. So we've called and spoken to and then verified the end numbers of every airplane on the list. So it'll make it more valid, uh, more valid, uh, I think, as a uh, information source. And uh, if they're a mechanical uh, uh, resource, then we've asked them if they have an A&P license or a LSA repairman certificate. It's another new classification that allows maintenance on these airplanes. And in order to make sure we're sending people to competent outfits that can actually service them, we've verified them to that extent. So I think when this launches tomorrow, it's going to be a great resource. Everyone we've talked to about it and, and have brought it up to thought it was really valuable. The thing is presented in columnar format, so you can sort it every which way and uh, get at information quicker, full of links, full of email addresses, full of phone numbers of other companies, uh, and it's free. That's great. That's great. Right, One last LSA thing before we let you escape, uh, if in fact you need to. Uh, we got uh, a... Uh, some feedback or a question from one of our listeners, um, coincidental to your your being with us today. This is from uh, this was posted in the forums on our website. Uh, it's from Student Pilot Rick, and uh, Student Pilot Rick writes. Uh, this is actually part of a longer email or uh, posting that he that he uh, left there. But he said he said, "Do LSAs, light sport aircraft like the Cessna 162 Skycatcher, count on your logbook for PIC time towards advanced ratings?" He says, "I don't want to buy one and then find I can't train for IFR in the plane." What's the situation with that kind of thing? Do these things count in some way, or how, how does that work? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, I'll answer it. I don't want to drone on, but I can answer it if you like. Not droning at all. Tell us. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, all time in LSAs count toward any other rating or achievement you wish in aviation. 100%. No question about it. Okay. So that answers that. that answers that part of the question. Uh, relative to the IFR part of it is you can train in an LSA and you can go well down the path toward an instrument rating um, and 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 do a, and it'll all count toward that but not only that LSA light sport aircraft can be used for instrument flying right. they just have they just have to have TSO equipment in them or IFR certified equipment in them some of that stuff especially like a Garmin 530 or Garmin 1000 cost as much as the whole airplane does, so you wouldn't install that kind of equipment, most likely. But if you wanted to fly it under instrument conditions, and if you had a private or better with a medical and the appropriate rating, of course, and were up to date and all the rest of that stuff, then you could, yes, use a light sport aircraft for IMC flying. Not into known icing. There is no such standard that even covers that yet, and most manufacturers would say, no, 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 we don't intend that at all. <laughs> so it's not a serious IFR airplane. No one's presenting it that way, but for IFR training, 
many people say these things actually fly more stably than, well, not 172s and the like. Those are about as good as you get that way. But uh, there are some other models of aircraft from for which LSA actually are better instrument platforms, training platforms. So you can do both, but the main thing is all the time in any LSA counts toward any other rating. There you go. Great. That's the right answer. Terrific. Thank you. Well, we've been teasing you about the chocolate fountain, um, but I know that uh, you have a lot of responsibilities as a chairman of LAMA to go out and wave the flag and, and, and visit with folks while you're down there in Florida. So uh, if you need to go, we'd certainly understand, um, but uh, we'd also love to have you stick around. Can you stick around a little bit, or you need to go, or what's the, what's the well, situation? Uh, believe me, I would like to, and under other circumstances, not with any hesitation at all. But if you don't mind, yes, I do have some business responsibilities, and we'll get back to that groceries thing we talked about earlier. <laughs> I, like, I like to eat. So I need to earn a living, too. Don't mind at all. So, uh, yeah, go out and uh, and continue to uh, improve the world for, for aviation in general and light sport in specific. And uh, thanks for joining us in the in the virtual hangar this evening. And I'll uh, hoist a chocolate strawberry to each and every one of you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, or, or, something <laughs> else, right? or something else, right? Or something else, right? Have fun. Right, you, <laughs> have fun. you guys are a riot to hang out with. Give our best to Ram. I'll do that. Thank you so much, Dave. And to Annie as well, please. Good night, Dan. Good night. Well, thanks to Dan for taking some time. Uh, while he's, I, I know doing the trade show, you know, world uh, oh, yeah. that you, especially, yeah, uh, especially in his situation, he's got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of uh, things he needs to cover down there. And for him to take a few minutes to to join us and and to give us a lot of amazing, fascinating information, that's just great. So, uh, what have else is Haven't known DJ for a few days. He he's pretty much going to be like. We are at Oshkosh, a perpetual motion machine here right. throughout the Sebring period. Yep. We'll catch up with him uh, more on this sometime downstream and before Sun and Fun and, and, and talk a little bit. I'm interested in hearing from him how he thinks Sebring's growth and LSA's growth might ripple through to Sun and Fun. Yeah, that's great. Steve Tupper is – so I was talking to Steve the other day, and uh, and he suddenly says – he says – You'll never guess, Jack. This is just the coolest thing. He said, I'm going to get a checkout in a DC-3. And uh, it turns out, if you haven't, if you don't already listen to the Airspeed Online or the Airspeed podcast uh, at airspeedonline.com, you, you got to check out the latest episode. Um, Steve interviewed a guy uh, down in Georgia named uh, Dan, I think it's Greider or Greeter. It's G-R-Y-D-E-R. Uh, he's in Griffin, Georgia, and he has a, a DC-3 that uh, he both gives training in for people who want to uh, get this uh, into, into their logbook, and he also flies it at air shows and uh, has high uh, has some some really exciting ideas about some air show performance stuff he's going to do he's apparently a big fan uh, uh, grider is of uh, of Bob Hoover and he believes that he can do some of the Bob Hoover energy management stuff uh, in a DC3 uh, claims claims that and he talked about this in uh, Steve's podcast so you got to go check it out and listen to him talk about this but he claims that he can do a lot of this energy management stuff with the feathered props and the in you know landing on one wheel than the other and rolling out and things like that uh, and uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing this and uh, pretty interesting stuff and and the gotcha apparently is uh, Bob Hoover was was famous among other things for not only shutting down the engines in flight but restarting them during the performance apparently you cannot restart the DC3 uh, 
three engines uh, in flight, um, or at least under his situation, you can't. So, so I guess it's the big finish uh, of his of his performance. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Dave, that's not what I meant. No, I want to see this. Uh, you know, if he if he flies it uh, if he flies it a show on my itinerary, I want to be down there front row center with a big piece of glass uh, yeah, because. Yeah. Uh, haven't seen Hoover, haven't seen Bobby Yonkin do some amazing things in a Beach 18 and a Lear 20, I think it was a 24, uh, 23 or 24. Uh, uh, Gee, what was the guy's name that uh, flew the, the GB, hand-built GB replica years ago? Yeah. You, and you go, no way in hell that flies. And then he goes out and does this amazing routine uh, and you know, in, in in time, puts more hours on a GB and lives than any pilot in history. Right. Yeah, that was that was an amazing. Uh, I'm looking for his name here on the web, but uh, Del Del uh, Delmar Benjamin. Delmar Benjamin. Thank Delmar you. Benjamin. Yeah, that was a great performance, and he's retired that airplane. It's on display. Where is it? Is it is it in the Smithsonian or is it at at Oshkosh? I forget. I don't remember. I do not remember where it went. Yeah, but uh, but check out the Airspeed podcast. Uh, for, I mean, for all always check out the Airspeed podcast. But this one in particular is kind of fun uh, talking about the DC and 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 so you can go down and get you get the checkout and, and log the time and uh, you know have it in your logbook. And uh, Steve's all excited about about uh, getting to that point oh. sometime later this summer. No doubt. That's a, that, that's a typewriter. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Steve Tupper, uh, one little plug here for something that's coming uh, in a couple more weeks here uh, on Uncontrolled Airspace. Um, during the week of February 4th, we're going to be joining with three of our fellow aviation podcasts to present a special podcast, quote-unquote, podcast formation flight. We still haven't got a better name for it yet. Um, during that week, each of these podcasts uh, will include special features about different aspects of the subject of buying and owning your own airplane. So Airspeed's T- Steve Tupper, Finer Points, Jason Miller, the Pilot's Flight Podlog, Will Hawkins, and ourselves uh, are, are all pl- currently planning on doing episodes that focus on different aspects of the subject matter. So, uh, And there may be other podcasts that join in as well. So uh, if you don't already listen to all these podcasts, you should check them out and uh, watch for all of them during the week of February 4th. That should be uh, UCAP 66. That's coming that would up be a... That would be a Podmation Flightcast, would it not? Podmation Flightcast. Well, there you go. That's the name right there. Podmation Flightcast. Okay. Let's see yeah, now. Dave's been into the lines a little bit. Tonight. I guess oh, so, yeah, huh? I just started the next one. Guess so, huh? We keep hearing from listeners. It's great. Two listeners uh, wrote to us to tell us about uh, uh, more airport restaurants. Uh, Joe from Cincinnati writes, uh, Okay, so here are a few places I frequent when I am in the mood to spend $200 on getting to the restaurant. He said, <laughs> first is, <laughs> The first is Tony's Airside Restaurant in Lakeland, Florida. I'm not familiar with this place, but apparently it's right there at Lakeland where Sun and Fun is held. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, he said this place has a great menu and is in the beautiful new terminal at Lakeland Linder Airport, which, of course, is Lima Alpha Lima. And uh, he said, he says, I recommend the, the grouper fingers, which must be some sort of fish stick of some sort. It, 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 it's, yeah. Grouper, it, it, yeah, grouper is a fish, uh, but I didn't know they had fingers. <laughs> yeah, it, they, uh, they, 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 they come as a side order with the chicken lips. If you go looking for Tony's Airside, it's upstairs on the second floor of their beautiful terminal there, Lender. And that's uh, across the field from where Sun and Fun is held, right? It's sort across of across the field from where Sun and Fun is. Yep, it's a built. 
Big, build, building biggest over there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also from Joe from Cincinnati, he says the second place is called the Sky Galley. He says it's located at Lunken Airport, which is Lima Uniform Kilo, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He says the place has the motif that you would expect from a terminal that was built in the 1930s. He says it has great food and local brews on tap. Then he says, but sorry, Jeb, no lineys. I don't know why he f- picked on you, Jeb, but he did. He said, he said, he said, no lineys, My Jeb. My reputation precedes me. I guess so. Sunken Lunken. I didn't know they had a restaurant there. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time so, I'm in Cincinnati. Yeah. So he says, if you love if you love old time aviation, he said, this is a place for you. And uh, one of the regulars in the forum area is, is a guy who calls himself Mad Max, and uh, he's got a couple here. He says Luray Caverns. Uh, you can really? F- he says you can fly up to the Luray Caverns Airport, um, and a short walk from the oh, th- this is not a restaurant, I guess. This is just a destination. He says, uh, and and a short walk from the airport, and you are at the caverns. So yeah. apparently, it's a, a fun place to go and visit. Uh, he says, oh, these aren't restaurants. I'm sorry. Uh, these are just kind of fun destinations. He says, he says LaGuardia. He says, yeah, LaGuardia, but not so much for being in Queens, but to check out the Marine Air Terminal. He says, uh, Signature is in there now, but they have done a huge amount of work on the building. It's very Art Deco and very cool. So if you're in here, we should we should ask James about about flying in, in and out of LaGuardia and what's that what that's like. Even if you don't fly in, if you're in the uh, New York metro area. Uh, that that's worth a little side trip by itself. Yeah. He says, speaking of Art Deco, he says the old hangar at Detroit Coleman Young Airport. Uh, I don't know if Young is part of the name or if that's a description. If it's a Young Airport, it's kind of. Coleman uh, Young is the former mayor of Detroit. Right. Uh, okay, so the Detroit Coleman Young Airport. He says is another example of a very cool building. He said yet underappreciated. Plus, there's something about taking off. He says. Plus, there's something about taking off over a cemetery. He says if you muff it, you won't have far to go. And he writes grin. So uh, he apparently is a, an interesting airport. And finally, he talks about Burke Lakefront Airport in Cleveland. He says with within walking distance of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So there's there's some more aviation destinations. Um, the the, uh, the the lakefront airport, by the way, is notable for me. Um, when I drive to Oshkosh from Boston, um, I always look forward to driving past that point. It's a, it's kind of an interesting break in the trip. You're driving a lot of interstates, and and uh, that point is in my mind, anyways, the halfway point between Boston and Oshkosh. So I, once I reach Burke Lakefront Airport, I know I have to continue on to Oshkosh because it's closer. <laughs> That's one reason to continue on Oshkosh. That's right. That's one reason. Can't go back now, man. Can't go back now. Point of no return. That's right. Uh, Another poster in the forums area is uh, someone who calls herself the chart lady. Uh, The chart lady. She writes, uh, thought I'd crash, quote unquote, the boys club, she says. I haven't heard too many female female listeners mentioned on the podcast, but I do love it when Amy is on, she writes. I didn't think we'd ever get a lady speak up. Thank you, thank you, Charlie. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I actually have another friend, uh, another uh, woman airport, uh, airport airplane story that I'm, I was holding for another episode. Anyways, uh, the chart lady goes on to say, I'm a VFR pilot who trained in, in uh, C-152, started in 2004, flew for about 15 to 18 months out of the next three years, and finally earned my ticket in August of 2000. 2007. Yay! Yeah, she says, I'm starting the ground school for IFR rating at the end of this month. She says, I've moved up to a C-172 with GPS. She goes, wow, wow, talk about living. The convenience of being able to, <laughs> being able to push a button and figure out where you are. She says, but I always keep my finger on the sectional as I fly along. She says, I'm a I'm member of... Joking. 
Yeah, go ahead. Always telling Jeb to just follow along with his finger. So <laughs> She goes on to say, I'm a member of the Wings of Carolina Flying Club in Sanford, North Carolina. That's at Tango Tango Alpha. And she says, we're located about 30 miles southwest of Raleigh, off US-1 exit 76. I've done all my training and flying here. She says, new members coming in tell me it's a wonderful environment. I invite anyone in the neighborhood to fly fly by and visit. She says, the best time to visit is on any second Saturday of the month. We're cooking lunch and entertaining visitors. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And yeah. she, uh, she goes on a little bit more, but then she closes by saying, oh, and you've talked me into sun and fun. She says, my husband Dan and I have our tickets and hotel reservations already. We'll see you in Lakeland. Good for her. Good for her. That's from Jan. Jan, Jan the chart lady from North Carolina. And uh, now, so, why is she the chart lady? That's her. That's her. That's the username she gave herself on in the forums. Okay. I mean, I wonder if there's some significance to that. Uh, it, one of these days, you'll get into the forums and you could ask her that. One oh. of these days, when I have internet access. When you have internet access, I know, right? Okay. <laughs> We're going to send you down a string and two cans. That's well, right. You know, yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. And finally, another posting from student pilot Rick, who asked the question about logging LSA time. Um, he, he writes about, the, this is writing about the day that the ATIS was really wrong at his airport. He says, uh, the story starts on an overcast, overcast December Saturday in Houston. He said, I listened to the voice that reads out our ATIS information over the cockpit speaker. He said, among the usual information, I noted on my kneeboard that the bases of the clouds were at 3,500. He then goes on to talk about how uh, no sooner was he on upwing, upwind than he realized that the ATIS was very wrong. He writes, on the climb out, I found religion, he says. The plane was fighting a crosswind on takeoff, but the bumps and shocks that threw the little pl- plane around made me realize that I was outside my personal performance comfort envelope. He says, this was my first time in this kind of turbulent situation this close to the ground, and my nerves were on edge as I used significant control inputs to maintain runway heading and VY climb out. He finishes, he says, the uh, the first real suspicion I had that the ATIS was completely wrong was uh, in the sight picture coming off the ground. I was used to being able to eyeball the horizon with my peripheral vision out the side windows of the plane, but in this case, it was just a blur of gray. He said at 700 feet, I started to turn to the south-southwest and realized that I had less than 500 feet vertical separation above me to the base of the clouds. And he, he describes a lot more about his situation, but he, he says he immediately decided to land. He went around the pattern and uh, managed to get it on the ground. Apparently, it was quite a handful for him, but he, he focused and flew the airplane and, and got on the ground and, and decided to call it a day. He, he finishes up by saying, he says, my question for you guys uh, in the hangar are, uh, is this occurrence, that the ATIS being so wrong, is this a common occurrence? And, and how does this kind of thing happen? How does it get to be so wrong? What do you think? Um, it's not a common occurrence, no. Um, these days, anyway, um, when when the AWOS technology was first developed, um, kind of like uh, I think cell phone technology, it's an unfinished technology. There was at the time, anyway. Um, so the, the sensors were were new; they were tested, but uh, um, uh, just the interfaces and and uh, a lot of other. Uh, technical glitches were arising, and, and uh, some of the uh, some of the information that they was would observe uh, and transmit was inaccurate. Um, nowadays, uh, we're in I don't know third, second or third generation technology in, in AWOS and ASOS. It's a lot better. Um, um, typically, when a sensor will fail or start giving erroneous readings, it's got enough logic built into it; it'll fail itself, and you'll hear. 
you know, certain sensors are missing or or, or uh, uh, unavailable, depending on the, on the system you're listening to. Um, typically, though, again, these days, uh, those those uh, uh, sensors, uh, the systems are, are very accurate. Um, I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about uh, uh, which airport that was and uh, um, uh, what system it was, things like that. Uh, just for reference, this, is, this but, wasn't an automated. This wasn't an automated reporting system. This was the automatic tra- traffic information system. This this information could have been fifty seven minutes old. What well, I, I, I'm, I'm something I, I, and uh, blame cell phone technology while we're doing it. I thought he was listening to an AWOS. No, we're li- I'm sorry, we're listening to an ATIS. And, uh, oh, an ATIS, okay. Yeah, we're listening to at, an ATIS. And, at what uh, facility? Now, all he says is in Houston. Uh, he doesn't give us an airport designator. Uh, but, the, there, yeah, that's, that's, that's a couple of things, Rick, that uh, could play in here. Uh, yeah. If you were listening to an ATIS at the airport where you were flying, then my only possible explanation would be that the information was old. They only update ATISs normally once an hour. Now, if things are really dynamic and changing quickly, they'll issue a special and they'll update the ATIS on an interim basis. But usually it's only updated once an hour. Uh, if the facility is uh, is really busy and maybe short-staffed, which wouldn't be unheard of in the air traffic system these days, uh, then it's possible that uh, they didn't have a body free to do a special. And the conditions just changed that quickly between when the ATIS was recorded and when you listened to it. That's why at the beginning of the ATIS, they always give you a timestamp. This is ATIS information, something or other recorded at, and it's usually a few minutes before the top of the hour, given in Zulu time. Uh, so if you listen to that and it says, well, the information is 50, 55 minutes old, and it looks a little hinky to you, wait an extra 10 minutes for the new one to come out. Uh, You could pick up a radical change just in that time alone. If you're listening to an ATIS at an airport different than the one you're taking off from, then, you know, the coastal regions of Houston, it could have just been that different uh, on that day. I think you could be right, Dave. I hadn't really thought of that, but one part of his of his posting that I that I skipped over uh, for to try and shorten it up a little bit. Um, he writes, um, "As I put the plane away for the day, the clouds moved in and hard uh, in hard from the southwest, and it was raining lightly by the time I left the field. So clearly, things were very, were very a very changing uh, situation at the airport. And uh, yeah. between weather that was changing quickly and uh, a front coming through and an old uh, ATIS uh, posting that that could have that could account for it right there, I think. Yeah, Rick, it, it, there, there's been more than a few times in, in my flying career, and, and Jeb's and, and Jack's, I'm sure, as well, where I've listened to an ATIS uh, prior to uh, firing up the engine and looked out the window and went, nah, that's not what it's doing right <laughs> now. Uh, there have been a few times when I've listened to an ATIS just before it was supposed to change over or in, in, in actual actuality had the transmission go dead in the middle of the ATIS. And that's the sign to me that they're, you know, uh, about to update it. But I've looked at it and say, wow, I wonder how much has changed in the last 50 minutes. I can afford to sit another 10 and right. I'd rather sit 10 and have a fresher observation than go out and stumble in. The 
thing that's worth commending you for is that uh, you very quickly passed the uh, uh, the good judgment test here, and that's what this was in essence was a little judgment test on your part. Uh, you got up, found things completely outside your comfort zone. Maybe it won't be outside your comfort zone in in a hundred or hundred and fifty or two hundred hours from now. But today, that day, you found it outside your comfort zone. You noticed pretty quickly that the conditions weren't as advertised as you jotted down on your kneeboard. And you made the executive decision that going back was smarter than going forward. Uh, That's what turns young, inexperienced pilots into old, experienced pilots is that kind of judgment. So way to go. Yeah. And also, Rick, you you now now know what uh, you know eleven hundred uh, you know clouds and gusty winds looks like and feels like at your airport. You know, so you've, right. you've learned a little bit about just sensing the conditions yourself without completely relying on the ATIS or the uh, you know the the various observations. So well, it's like the joke somebody sent me the other day. The young guys asking the old guy. I think it was a sailor joke. Could, you know, how'd you get to to be so good at this? And the old guy said, experience. And uh, where'd the experience come from? Making mistakes. Wow, you survived all those mistakes? Yep, that was the experience. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. So thanks to Pilot Rick for his questions, and thanks to everyone for their... The, the, I'm going to babble for like 10 seconds here, all right? The forums are amazing, all right? In the past, I sat down this afternoon to kind of go through the forums, postings over the last, since we did the last episode to kind of find the highlights, and, and there have been 150 postings in the past week. Uh, there's just so much stuff going on there. It's a very cool place. You ought to check it out. I am going to get caught up. I'm one deadline away from being deadline-free for a whole weekend. Hey, there you go. There you go. Yes. We have kind of an interesting off-field landing of the week this week. Uh, oh, it's, boy. Uh, it's uh, not exactly an intentional off-field landing of the week, but a routine, actually a pair of routine off-field landings of the week. Uh, this also comes from the forums. Um, Tony from Ames, Iowa, uh, has posted two fascinating stories um, about when he's had to land out in a glider, uh, when he hasn't quite managed to make it back to his home airport or to his destination airport. And uh, just some fascinating stories. I'm not going to read any of them here, but I, I urge you to go and take a look at them uh, in the off-field landing of the week section of the forum. Um, he's written these two stories about uh, – it's not simply about the landing out. He, he writes about the uh, the cross-countries that he was doing and the gliders and, and the experience, and he's actually posted some pictures, and I think he actually posted a pointer to a video in one case of uh, – of uh, someone landing the glider. It's it's some great stuff, and uh, we think... Well, there, there's, there, there's some real adrenaline in deciding to take off cross-country in, in an aircraft with no engine to power it along. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you know that you're leaving behind the safety of the designated landing area and, uh, you know, the, the familiarity of the local thermals and thermal generators or the local ridge that you're soaring. And, uh, uh, boy, that's just that, – that's almost as neat a feeling doing that successfully as, as uh, you know, breaking out on an ILS and having the runway actually where it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Have you guys – so it sounds, Dave, like you've done some gliding, some soaring. Well, I've got about – Somewhere between fifteen hundred and sixteen hundred hours in hang gliders. Oh, but of course, and uh, predominantly those hours were logged soaring, 
neighborhood sites. That is, I've launched from the site near where I used to live on Lookout Mountain in North Georgia and fly that valley and the Lookout Mountain Ridge. There was a, a pretty proven ridge soaring track up to Point Park and back to the launch site. That was uh, That's a 23-mile round trip. Uh, but it's pretty much all ridge soaring, so on the right winds, you can do it pretty quickly. My my best time was a little over an hour. Uh, but my best ever in a hang glider was in the valley there in front of the Lookout Mountain launch site with a flight to Point Park and then out into the middle, middle of the valley and thermaled all the way down to Fort Payne, Alabama, and then oh. started to thermal my way back up and got near Cloudland Canyon State Park, that's uh, well down the ridge uh, uh, on Lookout Mountain, almost to the Alabama line. Uh, burned out a little bit, uh, had to hang out over a rock face for a while, then ridge soared my way back to the launch site and landed. Uh, I think it tracked out to be about a 75-mile triangle that took me six hours and 52 minutes to fly. Whoa. Uh-oh. And several periods there when I wasn't really sure that I was going to pick up the next patch of lift to carry me back, you know, on track to whichever direction I was going. There's a little bit of this adrenaline that starts to pop up when you start looking for possible landing sites. Yeah. Because around Cloudland Canyon and a couple of other stretches there, Lookout Mountain, either the valley was very narrow and the open fields few, or you were looking at a three, three and a half mile glide uh, downwind to get out from uh, the trees and to where there were any open fields. And landing in the trees it's not, wouldn't have been a new experience, but it sure is a pain in the neck. So, uh, you know, felt great to get back. And uh, anybody that's done soaring and hit across country to work on one of the, the, the soaring badges that the Soaring Society of America offers. Uh, they offer badges for different distance triangles and so forth. Uh, it, 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 there's a lot. you, you got to have some confidence and a little bit of nerve and, and, uh, and, and a, a bit of faith. And uh, then the rest of it is just kind of you control the adrenaline, swallow hard, and focus on, uh, on keeping the, the, the yaw string in the middle and the uh, variometer bubble in the up column. Yeah. Have you, did, did you ever do any of this uh, high-altitude hang gliding stuff? Uh, well, am I remembering this right? I remember a guy I knew uh, back in California who uh, went out on weekends, and I think it was hang gliding, and he'd go for like these high altitude, amazing. I mean, like like ten, fourteen thousand feet. Am I thinking of this? Is this correct? Do people well, do this? I, I've been I've been to fourteen, fifteen thousand feet in a hang glider. Yeah, cool. Uh, launched from Lookout. Uh, launched from Grandfather Mountain in Western North Carolina. Uh, the launch site itself was a little bit above. Uh, a little bit higher than a mile above sea level. And uh, so, you know, a, a boomer there that gave you a 6,000, 7,000-foot climb in a thermal, you're, you're instantly into double digits. Uh, out in the Owens Valley uh, in the Sierras in uh, eastern California along the Nevada border uh, where they launch from seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 feet above sea level, uh, they get thermals there that can take you up into 23, 25, 27,000 feet. Yikes. That's snowmobile and oxygen tank territory. Uh, sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it, and it's it, it's real. It, it, it's really demanding conditions because uh, the thermals there uh, are, are massively strong. Uh, you're launching from high desert where the air is thin and and very dry, uh, so you got to run almost twice as fast down the hill to catch enough lift to launch to go out and, and grab a thermal, and you got to do that just before you suit up for sub-zero temperatures. Or yeah. just after you suit up. Just for after, yeah, right. Because uh, you set up the wing and all that stuff, wearing shorts and a T-shirt or no shirt, drinking lots of water to stay hydrated. Uh, then you get into the cold weather gear, put on the helmet and the gloves and the O2 mask, and that and a glider on your back run down a steep slope at seven or 8,000, 9,000 feet above sea level, uh, where you got to get the wing up to about... The, 27, 28, 30 miles an hour airspeed before it wants to fly well. Uh, then you go out and find the boomer. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to get some sort of... actually flown to hang gliders in excess of 300 miles. Yeah. Now, to do these high-altitude things, you have to get some sort of clearance from ATC? How does that work? Uh, because you're, yeah, not, you have, you're not normally allowed to fly that high. No, you're not without an instrument flight plan. Uh, but there is a, a method by which sailplanes and hang gliders are allowed up there. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I do believe that they wind up taking battery-powered trans, transponders. Yeah, there, there is a procedure. I know, I know some of the, uh, the high-altitude uh, competition soaring people uh, – uh, do that with regularity, and, and I think they uh, uh, either have a battery power transponder and or a battery power comp to go with them. And uh, uh, you know, the, the ATC knows they're coming; it knows where they'll be operating, and uh, uh, generally uh, keeps the big iron away from them. Yeah. Well, there's a German avionics maker, Becker, that specializes in extremely lightweight, compact gear that's suitable and, and very popular among uh, sailplane pilots, both NAVCOM and transponder that, uh, you know, basically uh, about a two-and-a-half or three-inch face uh, with a little remotely, mild, remotely mounted uh, uh, unit containing all the guts that will run on a uh, motorcycle battery for a, a long period of time. And as long as you're not transmitting the comm, you're, you're, you're not using a lot of juice to listen and right. the transponder is very efficient and uh, not particularly powerful, but at those altitudes, it doesn't have to be tremendously powerful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, how about you, Jeb? You ever done any soaring? Once. Uh, did did uh, some dual, a uh, two-seat Schweitzer, um, uh, kind of a uh, gift certificate kind of thing. Enjoyed it. Um uh, had a blast. I'd love to do it again. I've just never really had the opportunity. Don't know anybody uh, uh, who does that with uh, you know with regularity. So it uh, it just kind of goes by the wayside. Yeah, I've never. I, just, I, I was going to say the first one of the first airplane rides I ever had when I was a kid was uh, I forget how I actually even this actually came to my hands, but I, I got uh, you know one of these gift certificate things where I went down to Plymouth Airport here in in, uh, in Massachusetts and uh, where they have a. I think they still do have a big soaring operation, and uh, me and my buddy got squeezed into the back uh, seat of, of you know, one of these older kind of cloth covered uh, uh, gliders, and towed up to I forget what it was like three or five thousand feet or something like that, and and it basically came straight down. We didn't go thermaling or anything like that, but nevertheless, it was a lot of fun. That was oh, and, and soaring real sailplanes uh, compared to hang gliding. Yeah. 
it's a, quite a bit less work and, and a good deal more efficient. Uh, it, just like instrument flying will teach you a new kind of precision in your GA flying, uh, learning to soar and, and doing some regular no-engine flying will refine your touch and put you uh, in contact with a, a, an aircraft in a way that nothing with an engine ever allows you to do. Yeah, apparently the whole adverse yaw thing is really, really, uh, am, you know, uh, amplified oh, in, in that situation. Really, yeah, when you get wingspans like that. Literally on your toes. Yeah, yeah. you, you got to be way more coordinated. You can be much more sloppy in a in a, a traditional aircraft than in uh, Most of the big sailplanes use differential ailerons to help offset that, and it does offset it. Uh, to a certain degree, but at the same time, you know, thermaling air is by nature not smooth. Yeah. And uh, so the necessity to keep that ball in the center or the yaw string in the center uh, and to get the maximum out of the out of the machine is is an absolute necessity so yeah like jack said you you can be a lot sloppier in an airplane with an engine than you can in something that depends on on soaring lift yeah. and it's and contrary to common belief it's not quiet right people think oh the you know silent flying with the birds with the hawks well, and so forth a lot of there's me, a, lot, a fair amount of wind noise I, I, that was my recollection and i've heard that from people as well yeah there's some yeah, there, wind noise. There, there is wind noise but um um it's it's uh, a completely different quality, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. than um, uh, than in a powered airplane, for example. Uh, it, it's quite enjoyable. I used to try to explain to people that the sound of flying a hang glider was like the sound of riding a bicycle, minus the sound of the tires on the pavement. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, you pedal up to speed and you stop pedaling. And all you hear is the wind over your ears and the sound of the tires on the pavement. Subtract the sound of the pavement, and that's all you hear in a hang glider. Because mm-hmm. you know, realistically, uh, you, you're flying along it in the high teens to low twenties for the bulk of your flying, and uh, that's right in there with uh, a good bicycle pump. Uh, you know, pumping a bicycle really good, and that's all you hear. Well, the wing creaks a little bit because the wing maneuvers by being flexible uh the weight shift there's a little noise there but uh, you know by and large you uh you, you yourself and nothing cooler than you know in the summertime or spring or fall cruising along a, a, a section over the valley and smelling the backyard barbecues and suntan oil from people sunning themselves and so, uh, shout-outs. Oh, well, before we go on to shout-outs, let me say thanks to Tony from Ames, Iowa, for, uh, yeah, really. for the, uh, the soaring stories uh, and the uh, pictures that are in the forums area. Check it out. And uh, we are starting to reach the end of our allotted time here. Uh, shout-outs. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, we've got uh, EAA announced this last week uh, the uh, schedule for the 2008 tour of their B-17, the uh, aluminum overcast. Uh, it's going to let's see, you know, the blurb here on their on the EAA.org homepage says uh, EAA's restored B-17 bomber aluminum overcast returns to the skies on March 28th in Las Vegas, Nevada, for the first of nearly 60 planned stops during this year's Salute to Veterans National Tour. And there's a lot more Very. information there. And uh, these are just amazing airplanes. We, when we were doing the uh, the uh, Oshkosh episode there on the uh, on the deck. 
you'll recall that uh, one, the, one, not that not aluminum overcast, but AB17 took off right in front of us. It's uh, it's quite a thrill. At least it is for me. So that's uh, check out the uh, see whether or not the uh, B17 aluminum overcast is going to be visiting your area this summer. You should check it out if it is. Let's see now, Dave. Can you tell us about the uh, air cam? I know you've talked about the air cam on the podcast in the past, and it's gotten a, a particular honor recently. Yeah, I was really thrilled to hear this. Uh, my old buddy Phil Lockwood, who created the air cam design for a National Geographic project uh, back in the early 90s, I guess it was. Uh, the original air cam was kind of a spinoff of the uh, Drifter uh, ultralight design. Uh, but beefed up a great deal and sporting two pusher engines instead of one. And they, Phil uh, designed it and they built one and then it was, you know, trekked by uh, uh, African bearers into, uh, uh, I think it was the Congo, where the uh, front seat was occupied by a, a motion picture cameraman filming scenes over the uh, Congo River and, and, and around remote Africa, and in the back seat was our old buddy Phil Lockwood. Uh, that design turned into the air cam that's built today. Well, the Experimental Aircraft Association Museum in Oshkosh has uh, been offered and accepted that original air cam number one to be part of the uh, museum uh, collection. And uh, hopefully by the time we get up there for Oshkosh uh, this year, uh, it, it will be on display or it'll be about to be on display at the museum. It's an interesting uh, interesting little piece of machinery because it was designed to be field disassembled and reassembled. Uh, for the uh, You think about this, going someplace so remote that they had to carry the airplane in and put it together and then flew it off a sandbar to a river. Yeah. Over territory for which there were no other landing areas, yep. and uh, so uh, it's going to be in the EAA museum. Uh, in uh, really an interesting aircraft, uh, you can see the links between it and the one that's built today, which is much more sophisticated. It's got a monocoque uh, uh, fuselage tub uh, for the seating and carries the main structure now. Uh, before it was basically aluminum tubing and and, and sleeves and and some uh, reinforcing sections and, uh, and a little bullet pod. So the air cams come a long way. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen one of those uh, in the uh, ultralight pattern at Oshkosh many times. It's uh, it's an interesting airplane. It really is, and uh, it, it 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 flies like no twin engine aircraft ever. Uh, uh, the things that you can do with it single engine would put you on your back and on the way to the ground, and most other conventional twin-engine piston aircraft uh, out there. And this thing, you can climb it on either engine in either direction uh, at over 1,000 feet a minute with one engine shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, huge rudder, huge ailerons, big flaps, uh, tailwheel, but actually pretty excellent manners for a tailwheel. And on floats, holy cow. Yeah. Well, congratulations to them for uh, for uh, having an opportunity to, to be displayed in the EA Museum. It's uh, it, they have to limit. I mean, there are so many things that are offered to the EA Museum, and they have limited space. They can't accept everything, and uh, this is yet another thing to look forward to this summer at Oshkosh. Absolutely. 
And then one last, and I don't know if you guys have any other shout-outs in your head, but one more last thing on our list here um, is uh, news we got from Lakeland, Florida uh, this past week. Um, and I don't have the press release in front of me, but the upshot of it is that they're moving um, where the seaplane fly-in that happens in, in in concert with Sun and Fun is moving to a lo- new location. You guys know anything about that, about the details of this story? A little bit. Go ahead, Dave. Uh-huh. Okay, well, for years, what Sun and Fun has called the seaplane splash has been over at Lake Parker. And for anybody that's flown in there during the no-tam, you'll recognize the name of Lake Parker as that big lake with two power plants that you got to circle around when, when it's busy and, and you're waiting to get in and uh, uh, moved on into land. I, I know it well. Uh, <laughs> right, Jeff? <laughs> Many of us do. We, I've, only, uh, I've only flown into Sun and Fun once, and we went round and round and round and round. Well, for years, the splash... You know, was uh, you know had a small hardcore group of participants, and 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 a lot of folks came out to watch the float planes fly. Uh, but in the last few years, it's gotten bigger. Uh, last year, they moved it to a new location at the south end of the of, of Lake Parker. Still had trouble accommodating all the spectators. Uh, had uh, uh, more demand for space uh, among the the flying part of the show, so they're moving it this year to the Fantasy of Flight Aviation Theme Park, uh, which is about I think about 20 minutes west. I mean 20 minutes east of uh, of Lakeland, out Interstate Four. And Fantasy of Flight is a is a product and owned by our our, our old uh, friend uh, Kermit Weeks, who is himself uh, quite a pilot and collector of airplanes. Uh, they've got the only short Sunderland. Uh, in, it's still flying in existence over there. Some other seaplanes. They got a big lake, uh, a couple of big museums worth of uh, their own a- aircraft. Uh, fighter simulators that you can fly against other people in the same group. Uh, restaurant, uh, great some great displays about World War II and such. Uh, so the splash will be two days this year, and at Fantasy of Flight. And I understand that you're, uh, I believe that there's going to be a, a admission uh, with the Sun and Fun wristband that'll get you in to see the splash. So it's all part of the same event. Cool. Very Sounds cool. good. Any other shout-outs before we wrap this thing up? Uh, just the Tampa Terminal Radar Approach Control people. Um, I'll, I'll discuss that uh, particular topic uh, next episode. Okay. Super. Sounds, we're, we're out of time. We're sounds out of time. intriguing. Sounds intriguing. Dave, anything else? Just one last thing. I want to say congratulations to the folks in Vero Beach, Florida. Who from uh, oh, yeah. what, we're, what we're hearing are going to re- is going to remain Vero Beach is going to remain the home of Piper Aircraft as they move into the jet age with the Piper Jet here in the next few years and we haven't made a lot of hay about this because it's been one of those uh, uh, not inside the ballpark stories but one where there hadn't been a lot visible to talk about but several communities tried to woo Piper away when they said they were going to need to expand to handle the Piper jet. Uh, Vero Beach, naturally, was one of the uh, cities that stepped up to the plate. Uh, it weathered the uh, initial cuts, and now, uh, by all appearances, it's weathered the final cut. So, uh, you know, folks that uh, live and work with Piper uh, can look forward to continue living and working with Piper in that nice Florida community. Yeah. 
Great. That, that is great news for them. They, I know they've been working to Absolutely. try and work that out so, so that they could stay and but have it fit into all the other issues uh, around town. So uh, that's good news. Well, that's another great episode in the can here. I want to thank uh, Dan, who had to leave us to go check out the Chocolate Fountain uh, and, <laughs> and see to his responsibilities as the chairman of LAMA. Uh, you can yeah. learn more about uh, Dan and all his work uh, by going to at least two of his websites. Go to LAMA.BZ, L-A-M-A dot B-Z. That's the uh, Light Aircraft Manufacturing Association website. Or go to Dan's personal website, which is ByDanJohnson.com. Also learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com. Dave, of course, at davehignan.com and myself at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. And, of course, visit all of us. Check out the show notes. Go to the forum. Check out the blog at uncontrolledairspace.com. So that's it for 64. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in the virtual hangar this week, and we'll talk to you all again next time. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Would you like that?